Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. James Athey joining us now, Aberdeen Standard Investments Senior Investment Manager. James, let's start there. The lack of Treasury market action on a really whippy 24 hours into this morning. Yeah, a bit frustrating for us, actually, as, as duration bulls, at least. Uh, in part, we've been bullish because we, we thought risky assets were being, you know, incredibly complacent with respect to the outlook across a broad a broad range of, of factors. Uh, we've been thinking about this and then trying to f- piece together some sort of uh, understanding of why that might be the case. I think the story we've settled on really is that this is a position unwind. So what you had was the market was positioning for fiscal stimulus and a, and a blue sweep. Let's, let's be somewhat glib. Uh, and that meant being short dollars, being um, long risky assets and being in treasury curve steepness, possibly not necessarily short outright duration, but in treasury curve steepness. So what we've seen is even though yields have gone up, the curve has actually flattened uh, and we've seen equities being unwound and and, and the dollar and, and the yen rallying, which were, were probably currencies where you had short positions. Certainly the dollar is definitely one where they've been short positions. So we, we kind of think this looks more like a, just a, a clear out of some of those positions mainly because the virus data has got worse, also because I think some concerns a bit more latterly have, have arisen that the election result might be closer and might be contested. Uh, futures right now, negative 18, as John Farrell mentions, recovering. James Athey, okay, so you have ownership of equities. You have new money to put to work. You have to have a framework, a view out there. Where is there out there? Is it 2021 or is it November 4th? Yeah, I mean, ideally, we'd like to be long-term investors, and we would like to, to take the long view. I think certainly, if you are an equity investor, if you're, you know, my equity colleagues, these guys look at the quality of the firm, the quality of the balance sheet. They're not making an economic call, um, and they will definitely be able to look through political events like this because they will be comfortable that the company they're buying is a good company at the right price. Uh, that's not the case for all types of investment, and that's certainly not the case for all types of investor. So, in our asset class, it's a bit more difficult because. The, the the prices themselves are very much going to be a function of uh, the result itself and, and what that means for policy going forward. So uh, depending on the type of investor, you will be able to look through this event to a greater degree. We would find it a bit more difficult to completely ignore. So we will be managing our risk levels and, uh, and exposures accordingly. All right. So managing risk levels. And yet you said that it's been a frustrating week for you as a duration bull. What's the hedge here? Yeah. Well, again, I would have said that, you know, the curve was directional. And so as a duration ball, we've been running, you know, bullish duration positions. And we got some long end steepness on in the US. Well, kind of both of those have gone against us this week. Now, our FX positioning has very much been favorable to the moves this week because we've been positioned long the dollar and long the yen and long the Swiss franc and short some of the risky currencies. And so FX has definitely been a good diversifier and a good hedge for us. Um, But again, going into the event itself, I think the uh, the outcome is a lot closer than than you know Nate Silver, for example, is calling it, uh, and so I f- find it difficult to build a portfolio that I think will be truly robust to every possible outcome. So if that's the situation, I'm going to be happy running some risk in there, some short duration positions in Europe, for example. If if yields do go really high, I think you know European yields will get dragged to some degree. We've seen it's not a huge amount, but they will get dragged a bit higher. Um, so I can go in kind of still having a a bit of a small long duration bias, some shorts in Europe, some defensive positions in FX, but just taking the gross level of risk down so that it's, you know, we're not seeing huge P&L swings. 
James, how well do you think this market has priced in the headwinds to the recovery that we're seeing develop in Europe and elsewhere at the moment? I'm looking back cross-asset. Crude, the dollar, dollar bottomed out end of August, start of September. Aussie yen topped out around a similar time. Crude topped out around a similar time. Equities peaked around a similar time. That was two months ago, James. I'd argue this market was pretty ahead of some of these risks. What do you say to that? Yeah, again, it, it, broadly speaking, I think we'd gone too far too fast quite some time ago, and it really didn't need the the recurrence of a virus spread that we had seen for the market to take some of the air out of that. Because, again, we were just priced at the extreme of the probability distribution. We were pricing a utopian future where earnings would almost instantly recover, policy was going to be sustainable and effective across the piece, everything was going to be hunky-dory, and you know the the certainty around that is somewhere close to zero. So that was that was really quite ridiculous market pricing and we've we've seen that that you know we've seen some pushback against that to go to your original question how well is the market price in the outlook i would still say broadly speaking terribly um looking at us equities doesn't give you a good picture for global equities european equities as viewed as you've described have had a terrible time a torrid time valuations there are look you know look incredibly low relative to the us there are good reasons for that that still doesn't mean that they're cheap even at these levels um but you know a lot of assets certainly in, in US equity space really have not taken account of the no. uh, probability distribution of how this will play out, but also taken account of the damage that has been done and will continue to be done to economies and business models. James, I just looked, and you can do this, folks, in the Bloomberg, which is magical, in a log chart of the value line geometric index, which is an old war horse and has some really interesting mathematics and takes out a lot of the emotion, a lot of the dynamics of the movable feast of all these big cap stocks. It is extremely well contained and it is, as you said earlier, basically a pullback. How do you know when a bull market ends? How do you know as a fundamental guy when a bull market ends? Yeah, you absolutely don't, Tom, is the answer. You know in the rearview mirror. I thought, um, I, I noted, I can't quite remember who one of the sell-side uh, analysts was drawing comparisons to this earnings season in the US with the, the Q1 2000 earnings season where you got actually solid-looking earnings, lots of beats versus expectations, and yet equity performance on a single name and across the index basis was, was absolutely diabolical. Nobody in March 2000 or April 2000 was saying that was the top of, of the NASDAQ and it was over. It was only probably the end of the year when you could look back and go, yeah, that we're kind of done here. That's that's the, the highs that we've seen. And, and it takes a long time to get back to those highs when the overvaluation is so extreme. So absolutely impossible to know when it's the top, especially when you live in a world of, of post hoc justification for extreme valuation, just using rather glib narratives, which don't stand up to a lot of scrutiny. And, and that, that's been the case for a lot of stock valuations in this period. So I think we will only know in the rearview mirror when it was the when it was the top. Hey, James, great to catch up, as always. You're always good to hear from you. James Anthony there of Aberdeen Standard Investments. Thank you, sir. Apple shares falling. After the company reported iPhone sales that missed estimates, the CEO, Tim Kirk, cautioning that the latest iPhone 12 has been well-received, but the company is facing some strains due to the coronavirus. If you look at uh, iPhone, we are constrained today. How long we will be supply-constrained, it's hard to predict. We're supply-constrained on Mac, we're supply-constrained on iPad. And we're su supply constrained on some Apple watches as well. We're working really, really hard 
to uh, remedy those as quickly as we can. But at this point, I can't estimate when when we'll be out of that. And that was the problem, not just for Apple, but for many other companies reported after the close. Tom, it was about the outlook yeah. and the lack of visibility that so many of these companies have. I just call it all-American uncertainty here around very good financials as well. Daniel Eyes is an Uber bull on all this. He has been across all of media talking up out one year, out two years, out five years. Daniel Ives, can you write today for Wedbush with a two- and five-year model? Or is the uncertainty so great you've got to pull in your timeline? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I continue to sort of view it as near-term uncertainty. But let's say in the case of Apple, 40% of the install base hasn't upgraded their phone in three and a half years. So I think the pent-up demand, when I look out, I even think over the next 12, 18, 24 months, there's a little more visibility when you look at Apple from an install base perspective. But no doubt, I mean, that you guys see forest through the trees here on tech. We continue to be bullish. You know, I, I looked down at the people looking at 90 days out or even a year out. And if you take any of these juggernauts and model them two years or particularly five years it's shocking the growth. Is that growthiness still there, represented by revenue growth? But can it come down the income statement and persist out five years? Yeah, I think it's a golden age for technology, which speaks to our bullishness over the last few years. I think we're only in the middle innings. You look at some of these names, the profitability profile is dramatically higher. Look at Apple in terms of services. I mean, that gross margins about double the hardware business. And I think what you're seeing is it's very easy, especially in the jittery tape, to, to get myopic and nervous on some of these prints and guides. But for Apple, the super cycle hasn't even started. And in terms of our Asia checks, we think pre-order activity is more than 2x iPhone 11. So I think that's why when I look at Apple, I'm, I'm sort of knee-jerk reaction. You look out over the next year or two, and I think this is ultimately $150 stock six to nine months from now. So, Dan, why do you think the stock's down about 14% from the September high? I think part of it is just general nervousness going into the super cycle. China, obviously, is a key. That's the hearts and lungs of the overall cycle. And if you look, you know, and you saw this quarter, I think there's just general nervousness that you're not going to see that demand. Valuations had a huge re-rating. And you start to see perfection built in. And I think you're seeing a risk off overall intact just going into the next week but i believe it's short-lived that that's why i still think it's green light to own tech and i think i look out over the next year and i think tech stocks are up another 20 percent plus that's been your call through much of this year see it feels like a rolling 20 percent call dan and for much of this year it's been dead on but something happened in early september dan some people are asking whether we've already seen the pull forward for Apple through the shutdown. And this is not about waiting for the iPhone 12. This is the payback for a really decent quarter when the world was shut down. What's your response to that, Dan? Yeah, I've seen, you've seen the pull forward on Macs and obviously on, on iPads. You've not seen the pull forward on iPhones. And, and I think that's really the key here. You're going into what I view as a once in a decade super cycle for Apple. So that is still on the horizon, especially when it comes to China. Because you got 40% of the install base that hasn't upgraded their phone and a stock that gets re-rated on services, which next year, that's going to be north of $60 billion. And that continues to be the crux of the thesis here in terms of that's playing out. And this quarter doesn't change that whatsoever for me. 
Dan, one aspect of the big tech earnings that strikes me as odd is that they continue to trade as a monolith. By large, in large part, people talk about big tech in tandem as though their fates are intertwined, and yet their actual business models are vastly different, whether it's an ad-driven model, whether it's a Google search model, whatever it may be. And then you have Amazon, which knocked it out of the park in terms of projections, and people still are punishing them. Do you expect divergence in the fates of these shares, and, and who will be the loser in the next year? Yeah, I think maybe you saw a little of that divergence with Google, especially over the last three six months. And obviously, they, they knocked it out of the park last night from an advertising perspective. You know, I do think a lot of that could be on the antitrust. As you start to see more and more pressure from antitrust going into next year, specifically, if you see a blue wave, the Googles and the Facebooks you know, could potentially trade a little different than the Apples and the Amazons and the platform play in terms of those secular trends. But for now, you know, we do view them as a group in terms of fangs. And I'd also put Microsoft in there. The platform plays and the strong are getting stronger. And I think you're seeing that in this environment, COVID's accelerated the growth rates on the consumer and the enterprise by one to two years. And I think that's playing out here, even though you'll see some of the knee-jerk reactions on, we'll call it sandbag guidance from the likes of Amazon. Well, Dan, they're increasingly being treated as the haven investments because of what you talk about, the strong are getting stronger, and yet the valuations, the multiples are getting higher and higher, and people are saying, well, it makes sense with such low yields. How much would you change your call if benchmark rates in the U.S. went up? Yeah, I think that could change things, but I also think what's starting to happen is investors are viewing them some of the parts. You look at Amazon, AWS, e-commerce, you look at you know, an Apple from a services and from a hardware perspective. So I, I do think what started to happen is in terms of some of the breakup talk, the some of the parts, the re-ratings that you've seen, I think that's the key. And also they are, they're safety blanket names in a category five storm. But then on the other side, you start to see, as you start to see more of a risk on trade, tech continues to lead the market higher. And I don't see that changing here in terms of just the shifts that we're seeing. Yeah. And I think it's evident through earnings season. Dan, one of the great questions here, and I just did a quick Pharaoh interpolation of the share buyback program of Apple. And folks, basically out 10 years, they go back to where they were in 1992 in terms of share number of shares outstanding. Dan Eyes, other companies have tried that, Intel, IBM, and that story didn't work out so good. Is Apple correct to be so aggressive of buying back shares? It's hard to argue with the strategy in terms of, what you've seen on the net neutral cash policy, they're not acquisitive. And the buyback combined with, and again, the reason I think it hasn't worked for some of those companies, they didn't have a golden install base and it, and anything close to what the iPhone is with a 96, 97% renewal rate. And I think just given they have more cash in some countries, they're not going to acquire. Well, that from an investor perspective, I think the right thing to do. I happen to agree with you, but what I find stunning is the margins of the growing service sector. Do they sustain those 40, 50, even 60% margins in service? Well, I do. And that's why I think the services business Let's just take, and we said some of the parts. I think that services business is worth nine to nine hundred fifty billion, and that's been a key part of the re-rating in the stock over the last <clears> six to nine months, as it's held up like Rock of Gibraltar. If you've looked at the services business, and I think those margins, Teflon-like, can continue to, I think, stay where they are, or potentially go higher, and that's a key part of the bull thesis. 
What do you make, Dan, of the fact that China sales of the iPhone and just in general dropped 29% of revenue for Apple? The idea that perhaps uh, this has to do with the new phone coming out, but even more so perhaps the tensions that are growing between China and the U.S. when it comes to tech. Yeah, I think tensions that's been there opposed to child for U.S.-China trade war, just overall cold tech war. But I think this quarter is a throwaway quarter for China because it all comes down to you see a pause ahead of iPhone 12. I mean, we believe you could see growth in China double digits starting the December quarter. That's why I wouldn't read into this. In other words, the, it's a scary headline. Stock will be down knee jerk. I think three months from now, we sit here, we're talking about how is China that strong in terms of iPhone 12? That's based on what we see in terms of checks and pent up demand. And we'll see you in three months. The bull is still a bull. Dan Ives of Wedbush on the safety blanket in a Cat 5 storm. Right now, Lindsay Piazza joins us right now from Steve. We're thrilled that she could join uh, this morning. Lindsay, I want to go right to that. Michael McKee showing the oddities of the moment, a savings rate that is double digit. That's not normal for America. What are the ramifications of that high savings rate? No, it's certainly not normal. And when we see Americans squirreling away that type of, of cash, that uh, that amount of wealth, it really speaks to the uncertainty that the average American is feeling about their financial footing going forward. A 14% savings rate translates into over uh, $2 trillion in accumulated wealth and accumulated savings that can be deployed out into the marketplace. But right now, consumers are looking out at the recovery. They're looking out at the prospect of a resurgence of the virus and potential further restrictions. Or, or shutdowns, and the consumer is very nervous. And in fact, rather than immediately spending that wealth, they're deploying that to their savings account and sitting on that additional savings. Lindsay, just quickly, of course, the distribution for those savings, not equal. Where in society is that money sitting right now, and how likely is it that it'll be spent? Well, I do think there's a disproportionate amount of the savings that is being uh, held at the top rung of the income ladder. But with forbearance, with uh, generous unemployment benefits, there is a, a sizable amount of wealth that has been captured, even in the middle or bottom rungs of the income ladder. So, yes, there is a little bit of a skew towards the top. But I do think that when we look at overall, the average American may be uh, better off than they were pre-pandemic, or at least on somewhat stronger financial footing. So going back to a point you made earlier, I do think that this looming fiscal cliff that many are concerned about may not be quite as ominous as uh, previously assessed because of that additional savings or that additional wealth that the average American is facing right now. That's where I wanted to go. If we could game out how long households have to maintain spending or even just reduce it a little bit, uh, perhaps to edify these, uh, pro uh, these uh, forecasts for a blockbuster holiday season, how long do we have before we sort of hit the wall, where we either need more fiscal support or we actually see the slowdown that so many people have predicted would already have happened and yet hasn't? Well, if we assume that the economy continues at this pace, the consumer does have several months to eat through that accumulated wealth that should carry us well into the first quarter, even independent of a fifth round stimulus package. But we also have to recognize that the virus is far from contained, and that remains the number one risk to the economy, or, or should I say the policies aimed at stemming the spread of the virus remain the number one risk. And if, in fact, we do see a resurgence towards the end of the year, leading to further restrictions, further lockdowns, 
lockdowns, resulting in further business closures, job losses, lost income, revenue, opportunities. Well, we could see growth regardless of the, the savings or that wealth accumulation. We could see growth slow significantly or even fall into net negative territory, uh, depending on the depth and duration of that rebound uh, or that resurgence of the virus. Lindsay, final question for me. I think it's the biggest question for any economist in the United States right now. Does this U.S. economy and this recovery go the way of China or go the way of Europe by year end? I think right now the risk is that we see a similar uh, scenario that was playing out in Europe right now. Again, that second round resurgence of the virus really undermining the improvement that we've seen July to September. That was a welcome step in the right direction, a record 30 percent bounce. But again, reflecting the <clears> fact that we're simply reopening the economy. So really emphasizing the power of reopening the economy, bouncing off of those low, low levels that we saw in the second quarter when businesses were forced to close and individuals were uh, forced to, to stay within the confines of their home. And it really highlights the ongoing detrimental impact of keeping the economy closed should we see new policies uh, force the same scenario as we head towards the end of the year. And that's the issue right there. Lindsay, great to catch up with you. Good to hear from you. Lindsay Piexa there, Stiefel, Chief Economist. Rob Felsen with us with Prudential. I want to get right into this because this is the topic and one of the topics of thinking into the weekend around all the crowded news. He is vice chair of Prudential fi Financial, Lisa. And Rob Felsen really simply is considering getting people back to the office or is he a permanence to this work from home. Rob, Lisa and I have heard 42 different opinions on this. What is the learning curve right now of people thinking about this? What's the thinking now versus what the thinking was in May? Yeah, so Tom, uh, I think the, uh, the the thinking is that we're not in a sprint, we're in a marathon. And uh, with particularly with the most recent data coming out, it looks that you know many companies, most I would say, are are actually extending out even further the time that they think they're going to be in this remote environment. Uh, we've done that recently. We told our employees that uh, it won't be any earlier than July of next year. That we're looking to have them come back in any kind of material way. Uh, and I think that's you know, a reflection of uh, a couple of things. One is uh, in a survey that we did recently, it, it indicates that actually uh, remote work is working. Um, it's relieving the stress that a lot of these individuals are experiencing from the pandemic. Uh, child care, you know, uh, health care, uh, balancing work life uh, and doing it, doing it in a remote environment has actually helped to ease some of the pressure associated with that. Uh, and the second thing is that productivity has actually held up quite well in a remote environment. 60% um, of our survey indicated that their productivity is actually at or above where it was when yeah. they were at the office. What I'm hearing, and folks, this goes to a great team of Bloomberg Surveillance Worldwide. I really can't say enough about, you know, you see the three of the four of us on air. Well, there's 40, 50 people behind us trying to make the sausage every day. And, Rob, what I'm hearing is the, the employees actually feel they're working more hours at home than they were in the office ex-commute. Is that what your research shows? Absolutely, Tom. Uh, two, two, two things on that. One is, there's uh, three actually, there's been a blurring of the, uh, of the start and the end of the workday, uh, and it's tending to start a little earlier and end a little later. Really? Uh, two, two, two um, in the survey, uh, 65, it's, uh, individuals have taken 65% less vacation year to date than they did, than they did uh, last year. 
Uh, and uh, three, uh, on average, they're commuting an hour less every day. But 60% of that, they're reinvesting back into work. So it's not more leisure time. It's actually more work time. Yeah, I will say, Rob, there was a story in the Wall Street Journal today, the lead of which was, what would you do with an extra hour each day? And the answer is, for many people, work more. Basically, this is unsustainable going forward. A lot of people, if you talk to them, they are medicating with alcohol in the evenings. They're wondering what they're going to do with their children. They are not necessarily feeling the satisfaction uh, that comes from working from home uh, when it comes to this beautiful image of not having to commute. Do you see this as the new reality, or do you see this as people hanging on with all the they can, given the fact that they don't have options to go on vacation anyway, and it is okay for now, but then they're going to go back to the office. Yeah, listen, it's a grind. There's absolutely no argument about that, and that comes through our survey as well. And, you know, while remote has helped with the stress associated with the pandemic, uh, the reality is is it's still very stressful for individuals. You know, I think a a couple thoughts on that. One is, uh, if I think about the productivity gains that we're getting, uh, you know, and how much of that can be retained long term, I actually think there is a real productivity enhancement here. There was an acceleration in you know, what we call the future work, the adoption of technology, the digitization of processes out of necessity. And that's gonna be sustainable. But the remote, and, the, and, and then secondly, the remote piece of it, you know, our surveys indicate that two, uh, three quarters of the individuals that were surveyed indicated that they would like to continue to, re- to have some element of remote work on a go forward basis. Now, I don't think anyone wants to be fully remote on a go forward basis, or most people don't wanna be fully remote on a go forward basis, but um, both our internal company surveys and the external survey indicate that people have gotten used to this remote and think it's actually uh, uh, an enhancement to work-life balance uh, and they'd like some element of that going forward. And I think that when we return to the workplace, therefore, it's gonna be a very different experience and a very different place uh, for individuals because it will, I think, have hybrid models of remote on a go forward basis that look very different than what we had pre the pandemic. A lot of people would agree with you, Rob. I want to go back to something that Bruce Flatt, who is the CEO of Brookfield Asset Management, said, and it was uh, what we heard earlier in this segment where he said that if you go on the street, you ask nine out of 10 people, they want to go back to the office. They want to have some sort of communication face-to-face with colleagues. Do you feel like from your conversations and your research, people want to be in urban centers, even if they're not going to be necessarily going to work every day, they want to be able to uh, see and physically experience Experience one another and the world at large? Or do you think that perhaps this is wishful thinking by a real estate investor? Well, it is a real estate investor. So a good note on that. Two, two, two points. One is uh, it, right now in the pandemic, our surveys are not indicating that people want to get back into the office place. Actually, our own internal survey, 87% of our employees said we do not want to go back. Uh, and a similarly high percentage of individuals in our external surveys have indicated that they, at, at this point in time, don't want to go back. Now, Post the pandemic, do they want to go back into the workplace? Absolutely. Uh, But again, in a modified fashion, um, I'll refer to our own internal survey. We have, before the pandemic, about 21% of our people uh, worked on either three or more days a week remote. Um, When we did a survey uh, during, just more recently post the pandemic, um, three quarters of our employees indicated that they want to be remote three or more days a week. Mm-hmm. 92% of our employees said they oh. want to be remote two or more days a week. Now, there was a small percentage that want to be fully remote. So I think people miss the human interaction associated with being at the workplace. Absolutely. That doesn't mean they want to return to a five-day oh. showing up in the office. 
This issue's not going to go away, Rob. We would love to have you on again. Rob Felsen with decades of experience in real estate, working, of course, with Prudential Financial, their commitment to Newark, New Jersey. He is their vice chair. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.